Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. Well, if you would open your Bibles, we're going to start in the Gospel of Luke, but we're going to make our way into the Gospel of John, spend most of our time in the Gospel of John. Before I get going, I do want to thank Pastor Ken for the opportunity to do this five-part series. I want to thank all of you. I've had wonderful engagements with you after some of the sessions that we've done. And just thank you for anyone who engaged, who had a thought, who provided an article or anything like that. I've had several of you do that. And that has been exactly what I hoped would happen, that we would engage with the story of Jesus with sort of fresh eyes, that we would think about some things and think about the history, think about the setting, to read these scripture passages, uh, not just in the sentimentality of the season that we're coming into, but understanding that if you lived in Israel back in the days of Christ, you would have seen a flesh and blood Jesus. This is history that we're talking about. This isn't just sentimentality. And what Jesus came to do for us, I thought the song this morning was so perfect, who is he in yonder stall? Who is this child? And then in that latter stanza, who is he who in dark Gethsemane? And then who is he on yonder tree? To remember that Jesus, who was born, came for the purpose of dying. That's really where our focus is. This evening is in the end game. The steps that Jesus took towards the end of his life to fulfill the mission that God had given him. I want to make just a brief advertisement. International Baptist College and Seminary is right across the parking lot. And one of the finest Bible faculties in America is on this property. And we have a Bible and theology core. We call it and package it together as a Bible certificate. And that Bible certificate program is available for everyone. We work really hard to keep the cost down of that Bible certificate program. So for members of Tri-City Baptist Church, that program is half cost. You can get our 18 core Bible and theology courses at half cost. You can do that in the evening. Those rotate into the evening. So if you just take an evening class a semester, you'll get that done in a couple of years. And to help get you started on that, we want you to take the first of those classes. And so we offer that totally for free. If you've never taken an IBCS class, take a free class. You're not a Baptist if you don't take something for free, right? We're having chicken on the 17th of December. Next semester, you can take a free class. You can collect all the things that make you a Baptist, okay? And so we want to advertise that. Uh, And then you can take it for credit. You can take it for personal enrichment. So if you don't want to do all the tests and the papers and things, take it for personal enrichment, and you can have some fine Bible faculty. Uh, Dr. Christopher Ending teaches in that. Our own Pastor Jeff Kaup teaches in that. I teach some courses in that. And so we just want to make that. That's available for anyone who would like to get these things and go deeper into the Word of God. Take advantage of what our church has right here. I want you to go to uh, Luke chapter 4, and I just want us to see a brief scene here in the life of Jesus. In Luke chapter 4, there's the record of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Satan takes Jesus on a journey to Jerusalem. And when he gets him to Jerusalem, he takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple And he says, throw yourself down. This is in verse 10. Throw yourself down, for it is written, 
He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hand they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Satan is quoting scripture. Well, let me say that correctly. He is misquoting scripture to Jesus. And he says, in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Here's what Satan says to Jesus when he takes him to Jerusalem. He essentially is saying this, Jesus, if God the Father really loves you, you won't even stub your toe in Jerusalem. That was the satanic-led journey to Jerusalem, but I want you to turn now to Luke chapter 9 and verse 52. Luke chapter 9 and verse 52 is a key, excuse me, verse 51 is a key verse in the gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 9 and verse 51 says this, Now it came to pass when the time had come for him, that is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to be received up. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 51, it's talking about the ascension. That is, when it was towards the end of his earthly mission, when it was time for him to return back to heaven. Listen to this last phrase. In fact, could you read it with me? That last phrase of Luke chapter 9 and verse 52. Read this last phrase. That he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And in Luke's telling of the life of Christ, starting right there in Luke chapter 9 and verse 52, and continuing, again, I have 52 up there on the screen, but hear me say 51, okay? In Luke chapter 9 and verse 51, until you get to Luke chapter 19, for 10 chapters, you have the story of Jesus on a journey to Jerusalem. And he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Because as we saw last week, Jesus knew what would happen to him when we got to Jerusalem. And unlike the satanic lie of Luke chapter 4, on the spirit-led journey of Jesus to Jerusalem, far more than a stubbed toe would happen to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And this is what is so amazing to us about who Jesus is. Jesus surrendered his will to the will of the Father and depended on the Holy Spirit and then completed the mission that God had given him to do. And there are two things out of these five parts that I want you to hold on to. The two lessons that if you forget everything else, linger long in your heart. First of all, it is this, what I just said, that Jesus was a man who was surrendered to the will of the Father. He was also God, but in his incarnation, he willingly laid aside the independent use of his divine attributes. And as an unfallen man, he surrendered his will to the will of the Father. He, He was empowered and enabled by the Holy Spirit. And by doing those two things, he finished the mission that the Father had given him. That's a lesson for us. Our mission is different than the mission of Jesus Christ. Only Jesus had the mission of dying on the cross for the sins of the world. But all of us have a mission that God has given us, something He wants us to do for Him. And there is one pathway to that accomplishment. That is to say, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And then to depend on the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how we accomplish the work that we have. That's how the people in the book of Acts, the other part of Luke's writing, did the mission that God had given them. They followed the will of the Father and they depended on the power of the Holy Spirit. But here's the second lesson I want you to remember. Jesus was a willing sacrifice for our sins. Jesus was not the passive victim of political circumstances beyond his control. 
And today in particular, I want to lay out the picture, the portrait, the journey of Jesus to the cross. I want you to see his genius. I want you to see his submission to the Father. And I want you to see today the deep love that he had for us, that he was willing to take the journey to the cross that we'll see tonight. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord, your son steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. As we heard last week, he knew exactly what was going to happen there, that he would suffer many things at the hands of the religious leaders, that he would be beaten, scourged, and then eventually put on a cross. And yet he took the journey we'll see tonight because you asked him to, and he said yes, because he was empowered by your Holy Spirit. And he did it because he loved us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would press those truths into our hearts. May we live here amazed at who Jesus is and in wonder of what he came to do for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If all we had were the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we could take all of the content and with the timelines and the, the, the time markers that they give us, you could see the entire ministry of Jesus fulfilled in about a year's time. I think Luke writing significantly later than the others, they wrote probably mid-50s, something like that. He wrote probably 30 years later, aware of what they had written, intentionally filled in some of the, some of the blanks. Uh, John was sort of the Paul Harvey. He tells us the rest of the story. And he gives us the chronology that lets us know that the ministry of Jesus extended over three Passovers. And so what is presented in Luke as one journey to Jerusalem from Luke 9 to Luke 19, if we compare with especially the Gospel of John, we'll see that Jesus actually took three journeys to Jerusalem during this phase. So Luke just strings those together as sort of one long journey. But as we compare, we'll see that Jesus comes to Jerusalem three times. He comes at the Feast of the Tabernacles. You read this in John chapter 8. In fact, if you want to start moving towards John, that's where we're going to be for most of the rest of the evening. In John 8, he goes to Jerusalem, Feast of the Tabernacles. This is the feast where they would build tents and commemorate the wilderness wandering. It was at the Feast of Tabernacles where Jesus declares, I am the light of the world. He who follows after me will not walk in darkness. On that feast, the Jews would light a lamp that indicated and reminded them of the Shekinah glory, the pillar of fire that would lead them through the wilderness. On that day, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness. Jesus was claiming to be the Shekinah glory. He was claiming to be God. All right, that was at the Feast of Tabernacles. He comes again to Jerusalem in the Feast of Dedication. We call that Hanukkah. And then he comes later, the last time, the time when he would go to the cross at the feast of the Passover. So he has three journeys, and each of those trips intensified the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. So by the time we get to John 11, that's where we're going to pick up, the, the intensity of animosity between Jesus and the religious leaders is at an all-new level. Jerusalem, the center of power for the religious leaders in Israel was a dangerous place for Jesus to be. And after each of those trips, except the last one, Jesus kind of gets out of Dodge, okay? He gets out of Jerusalem and heads to safety. And so we're going to see that unfold. 
Okay, so he's taken two of those journeys. But as we come to the end game, the, the journey that Jesus would deliberately set up for his journey to the cross, we're going to see Jesus do some amazing things. And it starts here with the raising of Lazarus. Okay, so we're in John chapter 11 in the raising of Lazarus. And we're going to point out a couple of things. First, this miracle occurs in Bethany. Bethany was on the outskirts of Jerusalem, just about a mile and a half from Jerusalem. Look at John chapter 11 and verse 18. This is the location for this spectacular miracle. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, and the New King James here says, about two miles away. You might have something there, in your, if you're reading the King James, it says 15 furlongs. In Greek, it literally says 15 stadia. We happen to know that 15 stadia were 600 feet. We also happen to know that Greek feet were measured differently than American feet. Apparently, our feet are bigger. So maybe Greeks had smaller shoes. I don't know. But using the best guess, this was about a mile and a half. Bethany was about a mile and a half away from Jerusalem. So to put that in perspective, we're standing here, Tri-City Baptist Church, that would be going down to the Fries, that's on Alma School, and just going past that a little bit. About a mile and a half. So this spectacular miracle of Lazarus, someone who was definitely dead, and someone who definitely came back to life, about a mile and a half away, we'd probably take the trip to go see. This miracle happens right on the outskirts of Jerusalem, and that's important. So peg that in your memory. Bethany was right on the outskirts of Jerusalem, about a mile and a half away. Bethany was a dangerous place for Jesus to be. Look at John chapter 11, verse 16. You know the story. I'm not rehearsing the Lazarus resurrection story. I'm just pointing out some things here. Of course, they get news of Lazarus's sickness. They don't go to help right away. Then Jesus says, Lazarus is, is sleeping. They say, well, Lord, if he sleeps, that means he'll get better. And he says, oh, sorry, guys. I mean, he's dead, okay? Verse 14, Lazarus is dead. And then Jesus says, okay, let's go and see Lazarus. And then Thomas speaks up. Don't you love Thomas, right? After Jesus says, hey, let's go down to Bethany, Thomas says, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, yeah, let us also go that we may die with him. This is a great plan. Let's go to the outskirts of Jerusalem where we can all die. Don't you love that, Thomas? <laughs> and he went, <laughs> okay? This just indicates for us that this was a dangerous place for, Jew for Jesus to be. Right in the outskirts of Jerusalem, this is where the people are going to, uh, who are after his life, are, are centered. And Thomas knew that. Yeah, this is great. Let's all just go die. Look at John chapter 11 and verse 19. It says this, And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary and comforted them concerning their brother. There were many Jews. Many of these people had come from Jerusalem. We'll see that just a little bit later. They had come to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem for the funeral to comfort the family. Then look at 11:45 through uh, 40, 56, let's just go to 45. We'll just read this verse. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. They see this spectacular miracle. Many of the Jews from Jerusalem saw this 
and were amazed and believed in him, but some went away to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus did. So some believed, but some informed on Jesus. Okay, so we have this spectacular miracle right on the doorstep of Jerusalem, a dangerous place for Jesus to be, but he goes down there. Lots of people from Jerusalem see the miracle. They know that Lazarus is dead. They know what they saw with their own eyes, that he had come back to life, this irrefutable miracle. They go back to Jerusalem just a mile and a half away, and they tell everybody about this, including the religious leaders. Okay, so it's even more dangerous. The religious leaders, John eleven fifty two, react to this, and they say this in eleven fifty two, and not only for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the child of God who were scattered abroad. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Verse fifty three, they plotted to put him to death talking about Jesus, because all of these people are bearing testimony that Lazarus has come back from the dead and are believing. And so they've planned to put Jesus to death. For a little bit of comic relief, I want you to go to chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. Listen to this. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus. In other words, The guy who was definitely dead and is definitely not dead is just a mile and a half out of Jerusalem. So they were running tours. Let's go see the guy that's not dead anymore. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also. Not only are they going to kill Jesus, they're going to kill Lazarus. I think that's funny. Killing the guy that just came back to life. I wonder what your odds are. And then verse 11, but on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. So here's what I want you to understand. The impact of this miracle right in the outskirts of Jerusalem is that there are many people in Jerusalem that are believers, and everyone's talking about it. Everyone's talking about the definitely dead guy that's definitely not dead anymore. And then listen to this statement. It's right at the end of chapter 11. To see the effect of this miracle, and this is, you have to hold on to this because this shows us the genius of Jesus. Look at verse 55, chapter 11. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up from the country, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. So everyone's coming to Jerusalem for the feast season. And they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. Hey, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they might seize him. In other words, at the Passover feast season in Jerusalem, Jesus was the talk of the town. All of this stuff that happened a mile and a half away in Bethany has been reported fully among the people in Jerusalem, and everyone that's showing up in Jerusalem is like, I heard Jesus is down here somewhere. Do you know where Jesus is? Do you think Jesus is coming to the feast? He won't come to the feast, will he? I mean, everyone knows that those guys are trying to kill him. Is Jesus going to come? I mean, if you picked a feast season to come to Jerusalem and you were interested in stuff happening, you picked the right feast. This was a happen in time. Jesus was the talk of the town. The whole city of Jerusalem was a buzz. Is Jesus coming? Do you think Jesus is coming? Jesus won't come, will he? Do you think he's going to come? I think he's going to come. No, I don't think he'd come. It's pretty dangerous. That's what's going on in Jerusalem. 
So Jesus goes right down. This is why Jesus waited. Now, there are other things he was doing there too. There's a spiritual and theological message. I am the resurrection of the life and the life. So that's that purpose as well, to bring glory to himself through the resurrection, but he's also setting the stage in Jerusalem. Okay, everyone with me so far? That's step one. It's got six parts. Okay. Step two, what happens next? Okay, Jesus retreats to Ephraim. Okay, look at John eleven fifty four. Everyone in Jerusalem, all the religious leaders want to kill him. So it says in verse 54, Therefore Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. Okay, so Jesus performs this miracle right on the outskirts of Jerusalem, and then he comes up into the hill country into a little village called Ephraim, and he lays low. Just lets Jerusalem simmer. That's step two. Then what happens next? And to understand what happens next, we actually have to include material from the synoptic gospels, especially from the gospel of Luke. So don't turn to Luke. I'm just going to summarize it for the sake of time. But here's what we know when we go to Luke, and you can check this out in Luke chapter 19. As Jesus, uh, Jesus approaches Jerusalem... He approaches Jerusalem from the road that goes up on the far side of the Jordan River. So I've drawn the regular route there. As people, pilgrims from Galilee, traveled down to Jerusalem, they didn't travel straight through Samaria, right? We know that because they were biased and prejudiced against the Samaritans. So they would actually cross over the Jordan River, travel south. Then they would cross the Jordan River up through Jericho and into the city of Jerusalem. And we know from looking at Luke that this is exactly the route that Jesus takes. As Jesus is coming into the city of Jerusalem, he crossed the Jordan to travel with the pilgrims, and he starts to perform miracles. Remember, everyone that's coming into Jerusalem is asking, is Jesus coming? Do you think Jesus is coming? Well, he crosses over and he links up with the pilgrims, and he starts to perform miracles. He goes into Jericho, for instance, and heals the blind man, Bartimaeus. That's in Jericho as he's coming up into Jerusalem. And the greatest miracle of all was Zacchaeus. I mean, a tax collector was giving money back. (laughs) Jesus is doing all of these spectacular miracles as he's traveling with pilgrims. Okay, so Jesus goes to Ephraim, but where does he go next? He crosses over the Jordan River and joins up with the pilgrims as they're traveling into Jerusalem. That's step three. But watch what Jesus does next. It's fascinating. You got to be there in John chapter 12. So he's coming to Jerusalem for the Passover. He's traveling on the far side of the Jordan River with all of these pilgrims performing these miracles. Everyone is seeing these miracles. And then he waylays in Bethany. Then it says, chapter one, chap, excuse me, verse 1 of chapter 12, then six days before the Passover, okay, six days before the Passover, so this is the Sabbath, this is the Saturday before the Passover, Jesus was in Bethany where Lazarus had been, uh, who, was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. He spends the Sabbath before 
He would go to the cross in Bethany. Okay, I want you to imagine this. You're traveling towards Jerusalem for the Passover. You're coming, let's say, from Galilee. You're traveling south. You're taking the route everyone else takes. You've crossed the Jordan River. You're traveling down for the feast. And it just so happens that Jesus, the famous Jesus, the Jesus who has done all the miracles in Galilee that everyone's talking about, is walking the road with you. He's performing miracles. He's coming with you into Jerusalem. You're walking towards Jerusalem. And that road up from Jericho that Jesus travels through, guess which city it passes right by? Bethany. And as you're walking into Jerusalem, Jesus stops in Bethany. Jesus was coming into Jerusalem with all the rest of the pilgrims on that Friday afternoon. They have to get to their destination before sunset because that's when the Passover starts. And Jesus stops in Bethany to spend the Passover with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus a mile and a half away from Jerusalem. Where does the rest of that crowd that's traveling with Jesus, what do they do? They have Airbnb reservations they've got to get to, okay? And they have to get there before the sun sets. So what do they do? Well, they're going to Jerusalem, so they filter into Jerusalem. What does everyone in Jerusalem want to know? Is Jesus coming? And so here's what I want you to understand. At that sunset, on that Friday evening, a whole group of pilgrims entered into Jerusalem and they have the answer to everyone's question. Is Jesus coming? Oh, he's coming. We've been walking the road with him. He's been doing spectacular miracles. He healed this blind guy named Bartimaeus, but you'll never believe this. A tax collector was handing money back. And he's in Bethany. You're kidding, he's in Bethany? Do you know what just happened in Bethany? No, I don't know. There was a guy who was definitely dead, and he's definitely not dead anymore. I've seen him with my own eyes. You mean in Bethany? Yeah, that's where Jesus is right now. Let's go see him. Nope, you can't because the sun set. Bethany's close to Jerusalem, but it's just on the other side of the travel exclusion zone for Sabbath. You could walk the road from Jerusalem towards Bethany, and they would actually, I don't, we don't know for sure that these signs were up during those exact days, but you would reach the boundary of the travel limitation. And I bet you, you could see into Lazarus's backyard and see Jesus. It's just over the hill. So Jesus stops in Bethany, the sun sets, the rest of the people come in to Jerusalem. Now, why is this so important? Everyone in Jerusalem wanted to know if Jesus was coming for the Passover. On the Sabbath before the entry, a large group of pilgrims enter Jerusalem with the news of Jesus. They know that he's coming. They know where he is. And you can't get to Bethany because of Sabbath. So when's the first time you're going to be able to see Jesus? Sabbath runs from sunset Friday to sunset Saturday. And unless you go down to Bethany in the middle of the night and wake him up, when are you going to see Jesus? Sunday morning. The weekend allowed for the news to percolate throughout Jerusalem. So that entire Sabbath, as Jews gathered in the temple and celebrated the Sabbath, they all get the news 
that Jesus is coming, not only do they know that he's coming, they know when he's coming, and they know where he is. He's in Bethany. Are you guys with me? This is Jesus' genius. So what happens Sunday morning? The city of Jerusalem emptied out of the road between Jerusalem and Bethany, and we call that the triumphal entry. And Jesus set all of that up. Look at verse 12 of John chapter 12. Listen to this. The next day, that is the day after the Sabbath, a great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Do you see the setup? When they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, here's the triumphal entry. And Jesus set it all up. He went down to to Bethany, performed the miracle, goes up to Ephraim, hangs out, crosses over, travels with the pilgrims, walks with them, stops in Bethany, lets them continue their journey to Jerusalem, sunsets, all of Jerusalem percolates with the news, so that on Sunday morning, the whole city of Jerusalem just empties out, and Jesus walks into Jerusalem with this huge crowd of people that are shouting Hosanna, well, ready to welcome him as the king, as the Messiah, who would kick out the Romans finally. Jesus enters in to the city with a huge crowd that loves him. That was important because it was that crowd that protects him. We're told in Mark chapter 12 and verse 12 that the religious leaders, as much as they wanted to get him, couldn't because they were afraid of the crowd. Here's what I want you to understand. Jesus walks into Jerusalem on Sunday, then he does it again on Monday and Tuesday, and he's got this huge crowd around him, and Jesus totally took over the temple. When Jesus goes into that temple, he just walks up to the money-changing tables and just turns them over. He said, my house my rules, or my father's house, and I'll enforce the rules, right? Jesus totally takes over. Listen, if Jesus had come for a revolution, it was on. He had all that he had, all that he needed with the popular crowd there. There was a Roman garrison. That Roman garrison would have been easily overwhelmed by the crowd. The religious leaders are completely flummoxed. They have no ability to take him because of the crowd. Jesus set all that up. And he set all that up so that he would have two days in Jerusalem where he could make a final proclamation to the people of Israel. On Monday and Tuesday, both. He goes into the city on Sunday, comes back to Bethany, and then he repeats that on Monday and Tuesday. On Monday and Tuesday, and you can read this if you want in places like Mark chapter 12, Jesus goes into the city of Jerusalem. You can read about this in the book of Matthew. He goes into the city of Jerusalem, and with the Temple Mount his during the feast season, he proclaims his last appeal and message to the people of Israel calling them not to a political revolution, but calling them to a spiritual transformation. You see, God was offering his kingdom to Israel, but he could not give his kingdom to Israel unless they surrendered their hearts to Jesus. And Jesus isn't giving the crowd what they want. It's conversations like, should we render tax to Caesar or not? 
The answer the crowd wants is, no, let's stop paying taxes. That's not the answer Jesus gives. He says, you haven't even rendered to God what his due is. Don't worry about Caesar's taxes. You haven't given God his due. And he preaches these messages with freedom to the gathered people of Israel there on the Temple Mount with complete freedom because of the crowd. And all that happens because of this miracle he performed on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Each day he repeats, retreats back to Bethany. And there's something else of Jesus' genius. Because of the crowd being in favor of Jesus, being behind him at least at the start of this week, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees are left to conspire and connive and in the end to break even their own law. Jesus does this also to lay bare the motives and the intent of the religious leaders. We'll see that in just a little bit. So Monday, Tuesday, he's in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount proclaiming these messages. On Wednesday, we have what we believe is a silent day, and this is the day when Jesus sets up the Last Supper. Do you remember, it's been recorded for us in Luke, how Jesus sets up the Last Supper? He sends from Bethany two of his disciples, mile and a half walk into Jerusalem to find a guy with a pitcher on his head, right? Do you remember that? They go in, they find the guy with a pitcher on his head, and when they saw him, they recognized him straight away. They had been to this house before. This was likely John Mark. And the upper room, which by the way in Greek is kataluma, the same room, the same word translated in in Luke chapter 2, the guest room. It's the same word, the upper room. They had been to that upper room before. So why didn't he just say to his disciples, hey, go find the upper room, John Mark's house. That's where we're going to have the Passover feast. Why didn't he do that? Because there was someone in the room that had already made a deal with the devil. If Jesus had been in that house in Bethany and said, hey, you guys go to the upper room, John Mark's house, we're going to have the Last Supper in their guest room. When Jesus and his disciples had gotten up into that guest room, Judas and his posse would have been there. That's why Jesus is always one step ahead. He set it up, and he set it up in this way so that Judas wouldn't know where they were having the Last Supper. Does that make sense? And then I love what happens. They have the Last Supper. This happens on Thursday. They have the Last Supper, and then Jesus gets up, or excuse me, Judas gets up and leaves to take care of his business. You know what Jesus does as soon as Judas gets up and goes? He gets up and goes. He's like, hey guys, why don't we take a walk to the Garden of Gethsemane? I think if you, if you had, there was like a, if there was like security footage of the upper room, you would have seen, you know, Judas get up and slip out. Then as soon as he gets out, you would have seen Jesus. Hey guys, you want to take a walk? And then Jesus and the disciples all get up. You just leave. I don't know how long it would have taken Judas to get his posse ready. But you just see that empty room and then all of a sudden you see Judas and his posse storm into the upper room and everyone's gone. Jesus was one step ahead all the time. Because Jesus wanted this last moment in the Garden of Gethsemane. This last time with his disciples. That farewell discourse that we see in the book of John. That last moment. And then that last moment with the Father. 
in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus knew that eventually Judas would figure out where they were. But because he was orchestrating these events, they happened just as he planned for them. And so when Judas and the posse finally come into the garden, Jesus knows that they're coming. It's on his timing. He's had his last time with the Father. He's had his last words with his disciples. And he is ready to go. Do you remember, and John tells us this, do you remember what happens when they come to arrest Jesus? What happens when Jesus' name is spoken? They all fall down. If at the name of Jesus, everyone that came to arrest Jesus fell down, guess what? After that, you're not arresting him. He's just walking with you. Right? And this is where we see so beautifully the willing sacrifice of Jesus. They didn't arrest him. He just agreed to walk with them. And then because Jesus has been one step ahead of them the whole way, because of how he had come into the city with this thronging crowd around him, they have to arrest him and try him illegally. I want to show you this real quickly. We're going to run out of time here. But the trials at the hand of the Jews were illegal. They were at the wrong time, the wrong place. They were at the wrong pace. You see, the, the Jewish leaders have a problem. They've arrested Jesus, but they've got to get him to the, to the Roman authorities before the crowd wakes up. And so they have to do all of this in the dead of night and in the early hours of the morning. That was not what the law prescribed. They're going at the wrong pace. They find these false witnesses and they have the wrong purpose. Their purpose was not to find out what was true. Their purpose well, it was a kangaroo court. Their purpose was to go through the necessary things, checks the boxes, so they could get Jesus to the Roman authorities. So within the hands of these Jewish religious leaders, their true motives are laid bare. And the reason they're laid bare is because of the way Jesus orchestrated these things. But the Jews weren't the only ones complicit. Can I just say this? That over the last six weeks or so, we have seen just a disturbing rise of anti-Semitic stuff going on in our country and our world. And can I just say this very clearly? An anti-Semitic Christian is an oxymoron. I don't know about you, but I worship a Jew every day. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is a Jew. And there have been some horrendous things said by Christians in the past about Jewish people because the Jewish religious leaders at the time of Christ and because of the hardness of the nation of Israel at the time of Christ. But Paul tells us this, don't be confused about, the Jew, about Jewish hardness. If you're a Gentile, it is that Jewish hardness that has given the opportunity of the gospel. And if you think it's good for you, their hardness, just wait till you see how good it is when Israel is restored again. That's exactly what Paul teaches in the book of Romans. And so we cannot, as Christian people, be anti-Semitic. And it is not just Jews that were complicit in the death of Christ. 
Sometimes I think we give Pilate some kind of sympathetic hearing because he says some nice things about Jesus. Pilate five times out of his own mouth confesses that he knows that Jesus is innocent and still puts him on a cross. That's complicity in murder. And of course, we know theologically that the reason Jesus ended up on a cross is because you're a sinner and because I'm a sinner. We all put him there. Jew, Gentile. And here's what I want you to understand. It's happening this way because Jesus orchestrated it to happen this way. Because he was one step ahead of everybody, the Jews have to rush through everything in the dead of the night. They have to get him to the Roman authorities before the crowd wakes up in the morning and realize what's going on. And they have to go through this and, they, and Pilate is under pressure to appease them by sending him to the cross. It was in the morning on Friday when the crowd woke up and they saw Jesus in Roman chains that they turned on him. It doesn't take long for a crowd to turn into a mob. They had such high expectations. Jesus was going to come in. They had put their hopes in him. He was going to come in. He was going to kick out the Romans. And he had gone to the temple twice and he had called out the religious leaders and he had proclaimed his message. But when the sun comes up on Friday, all the evidence that the crowd needs that Jesus isn't who he claimed to be was the fact that he was in Roman chains. So the crowd turns on him. And, and chants, crucify him. And then Jesus goes to the cross. I'm going to end with this, and I'll do this quickly. But I want you to go to Luke chapter 23 as we wind up our series. Everything I've done in five 40-minute sessions, I usually do in 32 hours. So we get a little more detail but I just want you to see a portrait of Jesus on the cross. As Luke tells the story, as Jesus is going to the cross and as he's on the cross, Jesus says four things. On his way to the cross, there are these women that are mourning. And in verse 28, Jesus said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but for yourselves and for your children. If you knew what you were doing to the Son of God, you wouldn't be weeping for me, you'd be weeping for yourselves. So in Luke chapter 23 and verse 28, Jesus says that. Then look at Luke chapter 23 and verse 34. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then there's a third saying of Jesus while he's on the cross. It's in verse 43. And Jesus said, this is to the thief on the cross. He said to him, assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And then in Luke chapter 23 and verse 46, when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. As Luke tells the story four times, Jesus said, Jesus said, Jesus said, Jesus said. But if I had my Greek Bible open, one of these saids is in a different tense in Greek. Three of them are this, what we sometimes might describe as the simple past tense. It's called the aorist tense. But one of these four sayings of Jesus on the cross is what's called the imperfect tense. And here's what that means without going into Greek grammar in depth. It means simply this. 
that one of these four sayings of Jesus on the cross, he said more than once. I want you to take a look at those four sayings of Jesus, and I want you to guess with me which of them is recorded here as something that Jesus said more than once. He doesn't say to the Father, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit over and over again. He said that once, and we know that because having said this, he breathed his last. He doesn't have to say to the thief on the cross over and over again, Assuredly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. That was a pronouncement once said, it was done. And Jesus doesn't tell these lamenters as he's on the road to the cross over and over again, Don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. That's not the phrase that's repeated. The phrase that was repeated over and over again off the lips of our Savior while he hung on the cross is this statement. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Did you know that if you were there at the cross that day, you would have heard Jesus say that phrase repeatedly? What a portrait of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That while he was hanging on the cross, Father, forgive him. Father, forgive her. Father, forgive them. Because that's why Jesus went to that cross. Jesus willingly offered himself as a satisfactory sacrifice. Willingly offered himself as a satisfactory sacrifice. His death was sufficient to atone for every sin and forgive every sinner. And that's why Jesus was on that cross. I know that if we counted all the sin and all the sinners in the world, that that would be a big number. But the number of Father, forgive him, Father, forgive her, Father, forgive them, off the lips of Jesus and in the heart of our Savior, merciful and loving and forgiving, that mercy far exceeds our sin and our guilt. And that's what Jesus accomplished on the cross. The willing sacrifice for your sin debt and mine. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.